Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. My name is Steve Roost and every week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, founders and clinicians who are shaping the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. I'm a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I'm passionate about the people and companies who are shaping the healthcare landscape and changing the world. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to just remind everyone to follow at Health Tech Hour on Twitter and Instagram, and we're also on LinkedIn, and also follow at UK Health Radio, just so you can stay on top of who is coming up across my show and also all of the shows on the station. Now, um, on to today's guest, who has one of the most amazing resumes I think I've ever seen, and it's all true as well, which is a bonus. So Kate Newhouse has won awards at the First Woman Awards and Every Woman in Tech Awards. She was part of the Health Tech Advisory uh, Board at Downing Street, CEO of Dr. Care Anywhere, which was a telemedicine pioneer in the UK, and is currently COO of Couth, the UK's largest provider of digital mental health services. She's also an investor and a mentor to health tech companies and startups. And in the interest of full disclosure, Kate is an investor in PogDoc, and she has been unbelievably helpful to us. Personally, I've been really excited to get Kate on because she's got some credible insights from all of her experience in the sector. And as I said, she's been hugely helpful to us. So I'd love to kind of get her on the show and get her views out there amongst the listeners. So um, welcome, Kate. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Good. And I think that we can say that this isn't going out live, but that's due to a technical issue. So this is um, on listen, listen on demand. So apologies for that. But, you know, live radio, what can you do? Uh, so um, I ask everyone out the gate, how is the mood in the camp? I know we're in lockdown. So, you know, are you working? Is Cooth still working? What's the kind of what's the mood? Yeah. So um, Cooth is an online service. So for us, it wasn't uh, a, a huge transition. Clearly, the um, um, the tiredness, the the difficulties, the balancing personal and professional uh, impacts our entire workforce, and is clearly having a huge impact on the world at large, which then actually impacts us as a service provider. Mm. Um, but in terms of us being able to um, move into the online world, that wasn't a, big, a significant shift. So all of our practitioners, uh, clinicians, uh, emotional well-being practitioners, they they work from home and they work online. Okay. What we have seen, though, is um, a significant shift in demand for our services and, okay. um, and the type of thing that people are presenting with um, to us. So right. we at Keith are um, we're accessible to five and a half million children, young people and adults um, across the UK and That's over good. the, yeah, yeah, it is significant. Um, and number. over 2020, we've seen you know, a 20% increase in um, 
uh, in demand for our services and then um, over and above that the presenting issues in terms of you know, anxiety and loneliness um, uh, are, are very significant. Okay well we're going to dive into Cooth in detail because I think it's well I mean I think that what, what what's clear from from your kind of career is that you've been involved in a, you know a number of things that have been trailblazers in the space one was Dr. Care Anywhere. Kuth is another one, particularly in health tech around digital mental health. So we're going to dive deeper into that in a bit. But the, the show is generally in three parts. So the first part is kind of the origins, which is how you got to be in health tech and, and what your kind of journey was and your inspiration. And then what you're doing right now, which is where we can dig into Dr. Care Anywhere and, and into Kuth. And then the final piece is we try and kick around some topics of the day. We try and avoid talking about COVID if we can, you know, because we want to kind of keep the mood up if possible. But it is a bit like a giant elephant in the room that is kind of not really um, easily avoidable. But so speaking about you, so what was your journey into health tech? How did it kind of come about? Because I know that you weren't always in it. So how did you sort of move into it? I wasn't. So um, a long while back, I actually read history um, at university. So so you can um, come in at it from all angles. Um and so it started off my career in strategy consulting, as um, lots of people do, but realized that I really liked problem solving, essentially, and um, then started to, so that was in the, in the noughties, and started to really understand, start to understand the power of digital. So um, I started to get a bit of an expertise in that. Uh, what was kind of, a, what, when you were starting out, what was kind of around that was a digital, what, what, what kind of phase were we in? So it was the time of e-government, so if you okay. can find back then. So um, Tony Blair was really keen and put a lot of money behind, um, particularly local authorities. Central government came a bit later, but local authorities changing the way that they interacted with residents and businesses. So um, uh, you, some of um, the audience will be old enough to remember that it, it was incredibly manual and in-person yeah. Um, up until kind of mid to late noughties and, and, yeah. and it's across the public sector still very, very much. Yeah. Is. Um, but it was around that time where people were trying to interact differently so that you didn't have to go into your council building for everything, essentially. Right. With paper. Um, and Exactly. You know, with all of your things that you'd ever, ever brought to bear um, and at, at a time and queuing up. And actually, were there other ways you could do it? And was there a bit more of a sort of risk measured approach to to how you did it. You know, if you'd been a resident in your in your area for 10 years and you paid your council tax and you'd paid your parking permit every year, did you then need to go in and, and display everything and sign everything and spend an hour with them? Yeah. Um, and actually, was that the best use of your time and indeed the local authority council's time? Yeah. So really thinking about not one size fits all, but a bit more of a personalised digital journey for everybody, but also recognising that Particularly then, people weren't all digitally enabled as they still. Yeah, what was broad? Do you remember what broadband penetration was like back then? Very, very low. I, I think it was mainly still dial up in the early noughties. Um, right, which was, I mean, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was kind of, I mean, I remember the modems with the diddly diddly did. Exactly. You know, there's no exactly. way you could, I mean, we couldn't be doing this right now no, no, no. at all. I mean, this is like, this is like the science fiction at that point. But anyway. Exactly. And then towards the, the sort of late noughties, the you know, local authorities really sort of started to understand the other elements of digital that were so powerful for them. So social media apps actually getting much more engagement from the community to help them do their job. Um, right. So it wasn't like the enemy anymore taking the job. It was actually an enabler to help them. Exactly, exactly. And realising that actually they could spend their time on the stuff that really mattered rather than 
uh, you know, the, the sort of administrative front and back end of, of, of that kind of interaction. So I was really kind of deep and involved in that um, and really saw the potential of it. But I was still very much from a consultant um, position, so an advisory position, basically. But during that period, I had a chance to take a small team from one company to to the next. And that company, BDO, was relatively entrepreneurial in its approach. So I got this really great example of starting something from scratch, which is just apps, as you will know in your um, what you're doing right now, is such a great experience. You really demystify those things called startups and uh, which is, you know, in the, again, in the sort of 2011, 12 was really the sort of buzzword of the, of the decade. And yeah. um, if you can start something from scratch, so albeit I had this lovely big corporate that was looking after me and paying my salary every month, I got to form a team around, particularly around digital um, uh, in local government. And so, right. got- so it was very, your, your background was very, is very sort of governmental, almost like local administration, digital applied to a local administration yeah. level. Okay. Yeah. And also I saw the, the intersection between health and local government. Well, yeah. How siloed it was and, and, and all of the issues that were surrounding that when yeah. it just seemed, you know, didn't really make sense. So basically about 10 years into my career, I was like, I love digital. I love the power that it can create. I love the areas that I'm in, uh, health, local government and, and education mainly. Um, having started off in the private sector, but I just the complication of of how it intersects with all of our lives is just mm-hmm. for me is a real challenge, but also real inspiration to kind of manage. Yeah. But I couldn't. I felt like I wasn't doing enough from a consultancy perspective. I felt like you're always one step removed. You how do you? Yeah, you, could, you, yeah you, you were never the decision maker. No, and, and how do you stop something just being like a report on a shelf? Like you can yeah. have an influence and you can support it. And also I recognise how actually difficult it is to do it from within, right? Like we have yeah. one of the, I suppose one of the issues of the UK is that we, we, we have been advanced and we have been so established so it's much more difficult to leapfrog things. Whereas I think actually, like, you know, if you look at digital health in um, uh, in other parts of the world where they don't have such established infrastructures and, and systems, actually they can they can often move a bit faster. So yeah, basically at that point and I just thought, I, I want to be involved in actually developing and creating a uh, an organisation that uses digital for, for the better in, in healthcare. And so that's kind of where I... I quit my consultancy job, had no other job to go to. Oh, wow. And just started scouting around. And went searching, yeah. Oh, right. Okay. And what did you find? So during that time, um, one of the good things about being a consultant is that you can then freelance. So um, I could still (laughs) earn money. And um, But doing that meant that you could also explore, right? And it was just starting in the UK and and there's um, about 2012, 2013, just starting to really – health tech started. You know, there was – I remember going to a conference in in the uh, Langbusson, um big kind of chunky kind of encyclopedic oh, yeah. um, reports on 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 yeah, healthcare. You know, it was like two pages in a sort of five hundred page catalogue, and so it was just kind of starting. So through my consultancy, I I got to um, sort of see what was going on in the landscape. So I worked with a friend who was really pioneering in the education sector um, and digitally, and through that. Um, I uh, again through well through my network I um, 
was pioneering about sort of digital tutoring. Like, what about um, international students who wanted to come to UK universities and needed to get their English to a certain level? Okay. And so, um, came across again, sort of going into my network through this um, video conferencing um, company, and they came into pitch to us, and they pitched a very early stage um, Doctor Care Anywhere. Oh, really? It was that. It was that team that came in. Yeah. So, oh, wow. um, and I just thought this is this is just um, I mean obvious, obvious, right. but, um, but brilliant. And okay. so, um, uh, basically, a couple of months later, they approached me and said, "Do you want to come and join very early fledgling?" It was about two months old at that time. Wow. So like right, basically right in at the start. Yeah, yeah. And what like I'm, I love the kind of origin stories of some of these these companies that then become very very well established and sort of trailblazers in their space. You know, and I love to. What what was the first presentation like? Was it called Doctor Care Anywhere or was it something completely different? No, it was called Doctor Care Anywhere. Okay. And and the the, the two founders, um, they would been at um, a medical medical school together. One had um, gone the route of, um, he'd been a surgeon, then he turned into a, a GP. So he was a GP partner. Okay. And the other one um, had moved out of being um, in clinical practice and had gone to McKinsey and, and had done a little bit of investing. Mm-hmm. And the two came together over you know, a bottle of wine 10 years later and said, there must be a better way to access doctors. And so they then approached this video software, um, uh, video conferencing software company, and um, yeah, the first the first presentation was um, was different in that there was an option of one to many, which was kind of interesting when you think about oh right, like a kind of a group session. Yeah, when you think about that, and you know, we haven't moved to that point yet in primary care. Well, but, like, is this, would everyone have to have the same problem, or how would that like? Yeah, and it was partly around multidisciplinary teams, which we're okay. not there yet either, but right. we will be. Um, so, but actually, you know, the original concept, it hasn't changed that much. Right. And was it, was it at the time, was it one of the first or the first in the UK? What, because a few launched kind of at this sort of similar time, maybe, but I don't quite know the order. Yeah. So there were a couple of um, uh, longstanding, actually, phone GP services. Okay. So, um, yeah, phone had been used because why not? It was a technology that existed. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of that new wave of video conferencing, of really thinking about this is a different modality. This is, you know, you have to actually think about the way it's different. So a lot of my work in the noughties was all about you can't just take an adoption process with a local authority and put it on a PDF and put it on a website. Right. I mean, that's obvious now. And we know that. Right. But actually, at the time, digitization was sort of that right. but actually when you when you move an in-person gp consultation into an online environment you have to think about the different way you ask questions the different way you engage mm. and so dr care anywhere was one of those was one of the first to really engage on how is it actually different and how do okay. you optimize it um, and so that came along with we were basically the same time as as, as three other big players in the market so most of <laughs> you will have heard of Babylon and yeah so that that's interesting what was your kind of take on them at the time like did you did you have a particular view on them or um, so we were we were tracking very sort of similar time frames um, they raised a lot of money early um, yeah. Care Anywhere did it much more in a sort of a kind of gradual, more organic way. Um, they looked at 
uh, getting to market through all channels. They were a great educator in the market, partly because of their funding, so that they they, they could yeah. they could get out there. Um, whereas I think with Dr. Kerry, where we we had a bit more of a um, of a, a of a, of a focused approach so we we look to um go via the corporate and insurer route and very much with a um building quality um clinical of the actual um consultation first so we okay. really focused on that rather than looking at other elements of the pathway which dr Kerry and we are getting to now but right yeah we were a bit more um you know, a, a single track focus at that at that yeah. What works? I mean, you, you mentioned that there were, there are significant differences for video consultation versus in-person consultation, obviously, other than the fact that you're not in person. But what are kind of what are the things that you realize that that people probably wouldn't even anticipate or didn't anticipate? Yeah, so there's lots of things that um, I mean, I'm sure you, you've been encountering them a lot with PopDoc in terms of when you shift something and, and the things that you have to think about before all of the corner cases essentially so you open up access digitally to a service the assumption you can't assume that it will be used in the same way that what it's replacing or what it's complementing right because actually what we found is that you have to put a lot of safeguarding and governance around it in in so that um you you might be aware of um, the reason that somebody needs an appointment, but actually they're having a heart attack, right? And actually, because they've written that, you need to have the pathways in place to manage that. Whereas right. if you were just in a GP surgery and they hadn't called you, you wouldn't know. Right. Once you open so that. Almost, yeah, so you almost create more risk by offering the service. Yeah, and you have to just act proactively manage it. And that was one of the big issues at the beginning to, to, to change people's behaviours, particularly commissioners, people that were buying the service, yeah. because um, that hadn't been presented, that had that just had been ignored before because it was hidden. Yes, um, but it was like it wasn't an issue because it wasn't possible to kind yeah, of exactly. it, so like, well, you to deal with it. You didn't call us, so yeah, yes, having a heart attack, but you didn't call us. Whereas if you're then you know, booking your appointment and then you put those symptoms in and that's what it means or it could mean that, um, you have to manage that around. So that was a big part, the sort of intellectual um, uh, clinical governance around it, really important. And then the other thing is about the rapport and the actual quality of the consultation itself. Yeah. And again, you know, that had been looked at um, uh, in an in-person setting, but not in a, so it was relatively pioneering to really think about how do you get the best out of somebody um, and get all those cues that so- you've relied on. Yes, I mean, I know that now, particularly after the pandemic or during the, this this never-ending pandemic, the um, the um, the provision of services digitally is is well. I mean, we we have a number of GP advisors at Pockdark, and you know, they they say that they've had more kind of change and adoption of digital technologies in the past nine months than they have in the last ten years. Um, but but sort of back then, when you started, was was there kind of a a pushback from GPs or from regulators or from the kind of, were they like, you are crazy, this won't work? Or did they get on board relatively quickly? It wasn't as extreme as you are crazy, this won't work. But yeah, did we encounter resistance? Yes. And it's really worth taking the lesson now of where that has just been, uh, not pushed aside, but basically worked through rapidly. Well, it's having the right incentive, right? Yeah, it's right incentives, but also it makes sense, right? Actually, those yeah. barriers were not as big as they were put up to be. Yeah. 
and and that's what I was sort of saying a bit earlier about the um, about the UK, and it's because because we have such a brilliant system, but it's it's pretty entrenched and established. Yeah, you know that that kind of um, approach to change and, and, and innovation in in areas is not you know as um, uh, as well developed as it could be, yeah. um, and so I think it's really worth us seeing the lessons of the naysayers of certain things now actually really starting to think about what is what is a real challenge and what is just a oh well that will create a bit of you know yeah exactly yeah and then we've come across it as well where it's sort of everyone says well wow that's that's a great idea um but you know it'll never work no yeah it'll never work i mean we we, we, when we first started we we i mean again the 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 world has moved on and the, the 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 idea that people should be testing themselves at home for diseases and blood tests and finger pricks and stuff like that. It is not even an issue anymore for us. It's, it's sort of accepted, which is great. But remember when we, when we started, a lot of the conversations were like, Oh my goodness, you'll never get someone to prick their finger. It's never going to happen. You know, and now we have sort of people like swabbing themselves and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff um, without any, you know, without any issue whatsoever. So yes, it's, it's certainly moved on. I certainly can kind of. I think that's a good point though in terms of, those that are developing new ideas or, or creating startups, the importance of thinking about that behaviour change from an individual perspective and the commissioner and the person that's buying the service, right? So, so often people starting up an idea that, you know, they're so convinced by their own idea that it, they just get very, very excited and surely everyone will want this, but actually some real dedicated thinking and challenge and working through how do I get some kind of, champions to to start this off you know for pop doc covid has been a great facilitator for that i mean we've got to have some silver linings right um uh facilitator for for moving that customer behavior uh, yeah that behavior change on and similarly for dr care anywhere but we've got to to take that and, and for cooth but we've got to take that forward and work out actually when we don't have something you know we don't we don't want to have a pandemic to have to change um and improve and innovate so really need to take that lesson forward in terms of how we how we approach that that behavior change piece because we're all creatures of habit right and actually it takes effort to download an app to to do something in a different way so how do we as the people that are providing that think about the best way to get get people on board for it yeah and i think that there's you know it's it you you ultimately you have to as a as a you know CEO founder you know business leader you, you entrepreneur you 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 have to find a way to match your product to the market exactly, yeah. now and if if you you know and at some point you have to accept the way that the market feels about it and adapt yeah and try and align yourself with what their needs are right now but understanding that you want to take people on a journey and there might be an ultimate vision of a destination but you can't just kind of keep complaining about how no one gets what you're doing and everyone's an idiot and you know that's just not going to get you very far no no and really thinking about who are the 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 best sort of first users of this and i don't mean best in terms i mean in terms of how, how you can get people to understand and show the value of the product or service that you're developing in the yeah. best way it is a really difficult discussion but also a really important and, one and did you do that proactively at dr care anywhere or was it more kind of organic did you like deliberately target particular types of users or potential users or how did you sort of do it yeah absolutely we did um and um 
you, you can't go for your most difficult cohort first. I mean, right. however much you want to, you know, if you want to go for those that aren't digitally enabled first, it, it just it doesn't make sense. Your your, your product or service will 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 die under that. Yeah. So we we chose the corporate route because we felt like actually there was the the digitally enabled. Um, uh, users within that, and also by, by corporate, by corporate you mean you you businesses, um, businesses, right? But businesses would then give their employees access to your service, exactly, exactly. Okay. And at that time, um, in a non-COVID time, you know, people were commuting; they were leaving their house before yep. sort of seven thirty. Calls to GPs would take half an hour. So when do you fit that in? You've got to then pick up your children. You've got to go and care for your parents. You know, yeah. that, that kind of pace of life is mm-hmm. such that actually, if I can book an appointment at work, go into a meeting room um, and, and have that, yeah. the convenience was, was huge. So we really kind of, that was the sort of beachhead user case first. Yeah. Knowing that then we could expand out of that. Right. Um, so, yeah, we definitely did think about that. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so what kind of legacy do you think the Doctor Care Anywhere kind of created or left in the UK um, in the space? So I think I think it definitely um, was was part of that pioneering time of a really fundamentally changing how we interact with healthcare and starting to shift the um the power dynamic to the to the patient mm-hmm. um which you know, governments have talk, been talk, talking about for the last sort of 10 20 years yeah. but this was a sort of manifestation of that and i think that's really important so yeah. starting to get that sense of actually you as a patient mm-hmm. um you you are you know um a customer commander a customer and a commander of your own of your you know it's not just oh what's wrong with me can you tell me actually i i can take responsibility of that and so it's like a a desire to have more ownership more data therefore able to make better decisions um as opposed to a kind of a you know oh no you're fine your test results were okay cool i'll just crack on then yeah and also you know on um a service designed around the user yeah Um, and and so you know if i'm on holiday i can still speak to a uh, a gp that i you know a gp service that i trust and i know yeah. um, and and starting to knit together new pathways new ways of treating a patient um that was a digital and b designed around the patient mm-hmm. and you know in, in in existing infrastructure within hospitals that's really difficult to do yes. so it's more that you can do it outside of the hospital setting mm. the more you can take the burden off the hospital setting and the better that you can you can then start innovating within the hospital do you feel like the main role of digital health or health yeah digital health is is around alleviating strain within the system as opposed to you know, being very present and, and within a hospital or within a GP surgery or, you know, what's your kind of, is it about, like you said, shifting the, the power slash responsibility, you know, onto the patient customer, or is it more around trying to improve efficiencies at the point of care or both? So my experience and my kind of expertise is more outside of the hospital setting. That's not to say that I don't think there's a huge amount of potential of um, digital health within the hospital setting. I think there is um, in terms of record keeping, integration of um, pathways, outcomes based um, approaches, 
uh, much more kind of um, multidisciplinary teams, you know, removal of silos. There's a huge yeah. amount to be done within the hospital setting. It's not my area of expertise. So for me, I think um, the sort of the, the, the real game changer is when you start designing things around the patient Mm. and i think there is that opens up a huge amount outside of the hospital setting where before then there wasn't right Right. you couldn't do it um whereas now they have access points outside of the system um so it's just opened up a lot more opportunity and a lot more um access and support where there wasn't before but i still think there's definitely opportunity within within And so do you have any idea, do you still track like the percentage of, of appointments? Do you keep an eye on, you know, what, what's the penetration of, of telemedicine, telehealth platforms in the UK versus, you know, in-person GP appointments? I'd just be interested. I don't know whether you keep a, keep an eye on that because I don't know what the, I imagine it's obviously gone up through the roof as a, as a Yeah, last year it went from something like 5% to 80, you know. Yeah, right, yeah. And all GPs, as far as I can work out now, do the first appointment over on the phone, even if it's not um, telemedicine. Right. So um, it, it was an absolute dramatic shift last year, and I don't see it going back. No, I mean I would agree with that. I don't. I think it's one of the things that's going to be here to stay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, from one trailblazer to another, let's talk about Cooth. Mm-hmm. So how did you end up, you know, going from from Doctor Care anywhere to to where you are at Cooth? Yeah. So Cooth is. Um, it is amazing in that so I, it was a real trailblazer. So I knew of Cooth back in um, when it was called Zenzone back in 2004, 2005. So when I got into local government consulting, yeah. I would write these digital strategies and um, uh, for, for a different London borough or a district council. And it would all be about, you know, how do you become digital? And at the end of, you know, as you do in a consultancy strategy, there'd be case studies. And I would put in the case study of, uh, of Zenzone because this was a pioneering service that took a pretty risk-averse area, right? Child mental health, mm-hmm. which, by the way, in in two thousand four, two thousand five, was def- definitely did not have the profile that it had today. Um, was it thing? What was it? What, I mean, what was it? not really, right? So, uh, mental health as a as a sort of parity to physical health was about was coming about in adults but not really in children and then to take a very risk averse service and a very and then to say actually let's digitalize this completely and anonymize it Mm -hmm. um was really sort of innovative and pioneering so i knew about zenzone back then Mm -hmm. it grew organically and um as a um whole population accessible um in the main at the beginning children and young person uh digital tool access to counselors and practitioners and their own community um and then in the last four or five years that growth has really accelerated um uh it was acquired by investors in 2015 and then we ipo this year yeah i saw so um yeah as i said we're yeah accessible to five and a half million people across the uk um, and access to direct access to, to counsellors, as well as some really important elements such as peer-to-peer interaction and um, community engagement, discussion boards, forums. So a real place for people to explore um, how they're feeling on that day, um, also have um, uh, therapeutic intervention, but also to, to get that kind of peer feedback and support as well. Okay, so what I think would be super interesting is just if you could just kind of explain 
what it does like when you you know how, how would someone come across Kuth like as a potential user and then what their kind of pathway within the service might be or could be yeah so with um particularly our children and young people service so we're accessible to for example Cambridge and Peterborough where I'm based okay. um, they cover uh this uh provision for Kuth for all um 11 to 25 year olds in the area so that what that so what that means is that the, for an eleven to twenty five year old Cooth, it's free for them to use. Yeah, exactly. It's being paid for by the council or by the local authority healthcare service commissioner. Exactly. So, so it's commissioned by the by local authority or the um, local health authority, whatever that is. Right. So normally the clinical commissioning group, yeah, okay. in the area. And so, for example, my son's eleven. Um, he at his school when he goes to the loo you know there's posters behind the loos um, he might hear a uh, um, a talk by one of our um, integration and participation workers who will come and talk to the school okay. or if he went to a GP and said that he was particularly worried about something a GP might say actually have you tried Cooth okay. so we go through a number of different um, local channels but particularly schools and GPs and peer-to-peer so friends recommend um, you then google Cooth um, K-O-O-T-H uh, exactly okay. and then you um, he would go in and say He's 11, he's Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, so it's showing that we're covering it. He would set up a username, so he wouldn't use his own name, he'd set up his own username. Right. And as he went on, he would see various activities that he could engage on. So that might be writing a journal or putting together a mindfulness box. or so okay. and, and do they, do they get um, coached along the way or do they just get, it's just a list of options? How do they know what to, to do or what might help them? So it's, it's very user-led. So it okay. is... Um, uh, so a counsellor in a session might suggest things on the site for them to go and look at, but it's certainly there for them to explore. So okay. the different options are they can message or speak to a counsellor so they can. Okay. Um, uh, and it's, it's all done text based. So you okay. can send a message and wait for a message or go into the chat queue and then you'd have a, a synchronous session okay. um, up to an hour. Okay. Um, there might be discussion boards that particularly areas that you want to explore, uh, whether it be around eating disorders or loneliness or school bullying. Um, yeah. uh, and you can post things yourself as well. And those are, yeah, there's user content there as well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And okay. everything on the site is pre-moderated. So it's all moderated by um, by our practitioners to ensure okay. that it's safe. Um, so and, nothing goes live until it's actually been approved, as opposed to it going live and you moderating yeah. after the fact. Exactly. All pre-moderated. You set yourself goals. Um, and then in chat sessions, your practitioners will also set goals alongside you. Okay. And then journal functionality as well. So we're really trying to look at that whole um, right from a very sort of light usage within the community where you might get something directly from a content mm-hmm. right the way through to a, a synchronous chat with a practitioner that then might end up being actually let's let's look at doing 12 sessions together over the next kind of 12 weeks so there's really okay. like a user choice depending on um on where your needs are at the time and then going back to your point earlier about when you offer digital services there's there's an aspect of um risk increase which means there's more responsibility and greater duty of care so h- how do you guys think about that where you might have people on there or young people on there that may be well, slightly with, with slightly less serious problems and slightly more serious problems. How how does the, do you guys handle that? It's our number one priority, and it's the biggest thing that I and my role as COO and the chief clinical officer 
to spend our time on. So in terms of that safeguarding and clinical governance provision is absolutely paramount. So pre-moderation is, is one of those key important ones. Um, but obviously we need to review any content that is that is posted onto our site, even before it's moderated, as in before it's posted after we moderate it, yeah. to assess for risk. Okay. So we have um, measure of need that 80% of all of our users um, fill in when they first come onto the site. That okay. gives a really good indication of risk at that moment. But the really important thing and the difficult thing with with all digital health is that risk is a risk the, the level of risk is relevant at that moment yeah and it changes and it changes yeah. so you may be what we classify so we do have a red amber um green um system that at that moment you could be amber mm-hmm. the next time you come into that chat queue yes you were amber at the, at the last interaction you had but the following week you are red so it is yeah. it is something that we, we spend a lot of time on and it's a really core part of in my mind, that you need to think about when you start digitizing um, healthcare products and services. And how interestingly, how, because there, there's an element where you've digitized a service, created some risk, right? For good reasons. The risk existed. No, no, no. Yeah, sorry. So, what's what a better way to say it? The risk existed, and by offering the service, you actually allow people to get treatment for, the, for that risk. Exactly. But then that creates a greater burden of responsibility on you as a company in order to yep. be able to, to do yep. that. And is that is the solution to doing that is actually, do you think it's a human solution or is it a technology solution? I think it's an absolute combination, um, complete combination. But it is that you've, you've hit this nail on the head there, which it's a, it's the risk already existed. We're just unearthing it. And it's, I think it's... A and, real- and, and treating it, which ergo in theory has better outcomes because otherwise it would go untreated. Yeah which you'll also have in your experience with PopDoc, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of have those pathways. And I think that's, that's the added, that's the, the, the really critical thing about it. It's not just a PD, I mean, again, I'm short, shorthand, PDFing what already exists. It's thinking about actually what is also created and what is also the opportunity when you shift something from an in-person to an online or a digital um, environment. And um, with Keith, I'm assuming you do because it's been it's been going for quite a while. Do you have data around the the efficacy or the the better outcomes among people using the service versus not? Or how do you sort of present your the, the value of of the service? Yeah, certainly. Um, in, in particular, um, we can see we see access where actually no other service does because they just okay they're not they're not coming because they can't access it. So that's a, that's a definite. Yeah. So the level of engagement, the fact that, um, you know, we saw over a million users last year, you know, that is... That's um, massive. That's massive in, a, in of itself, because where yeah. else could they have gone? They, they, they had no... Is there anyone else trying to do what you, you're doing or doing bits of it or...? Yeah, bits, bits of it, but not to, not to the same extent, um, particularly in the children and young, young people right. in the UK, at least. Right. Um, and uh, but we use goals so that's... Okay. Right, of right a movement of goals okay so you, you say this is where i want to get to this is and and that's very personal and relevant to each individual's perspective and because we do quite a range as you mentioned before hmm. from um somebody who's actually got an issue that day but it's it's, it's easily resolved versus somebody that actually would like a, a need engaged therapeutic intervention over a period of time 
that's that's a, a good way of showing um, that progress rele- relevant and um, relative to to the individual. So okay. that's really important. And the fact that then um, individuals come back to us, so it's not just okay. they something from they hear something from, um, at school, they try it out, and they don't come back. So that continued engagement is something we also really track. And do you find that? Um because you know, I guess when I, I remember the, the school I went to, the, the idea, you know, it was back in the day, but the, the idea of discussing feelings wouldn't have really gone down all that well, you know, with, with other kids or even the teachers, to be perfectly honest with you. But do you find that now there is, you, you find children actually or, or younger people talk to each other about them all being on couth and what they're doing on couth and it's actually a much more open conversation or is it still something that's, you know, people keep very much to themselves? I think when we look at the we look at the um, uh, data around friend recommendation on on the platform, that is um, uh, very significant and right. definitely more significant than it would have been yeah. 10, 15 years ago. That's so I think great, the, right? that's where it should be. And I and I I definitely think um, in in that sort of generation, the eleven to twenty five year old as we are stand now there's much more comfort in talking about that and seeking help, which is really good. And, and one, again, uh, not to come back to COVID too much, but the, the sil- one of the silver linings there is, whilst I don't think there's probably been enough yeah. um, coverage and understanding um, uh, of the mental health impact, there has been that. And, and that is also very helpful and good. Right. I can see a difference between our adults that engage in our service versus our children and young people. Okay, so that, yeah. That, that, that maturity or that, that, that sort of, as you said, our experience when we were at school uh, has changed. And I'm pleased it has because it should change. You know, I'm yeah. a huge, huge supporter of, of mental health and taking it seriously. You know, I personally had therapy. I'm a huge fan of, of, yeah. of being able to have a release valve and, and, and be able to talk about that. And, and I'd recommend it to anybody. So it was interesting that you mentioned adults. So you, Kuth does have an adult service yeah. as well. Yeah, so um, we uh, are accessible to about half a million adults currently um, okay. in the UK. Um, uh, yeah, all corners of the UK. It's, a, it's similar, but um, there are different aspects to the service. Okay. Uh, and we're also accessible to um, corporates, so to businesses in the same way we were at Dr. Care Anywhere. Okay, but like, could I log on to Cooth and sign up for an account? Or would I, would I need to be in a low, an area where you serve? So to speak. Yeah, exactly. So we um, we don't have a um, direct to consumer um, uh, service. It is okay. through through coverage. So in in adults, um, we cover membership organisations as okay. well as well as full areas, um, and and also businesses and also um, public sector organisations as well. Okay. And are there, is this? I, I, I might be. I assume it's slightly different. The adult service is slightly different in content and structure, or is it largely? similar so so content obviously very different yeah, and if, if there's particular groups with particular issues we'll hone in more on that okay um, but in terms of that user choice um anonymity community engagement piece and the peer-to-peer uh, kind of support and learning mm-hmm. that those are still integral as as is the um longer term therapeutic intervention as well so kind of core elements are the same but there are definite tweaks be- um between the two okay and then um so one more question on this, and then I think we can switch to the the more kind of future facing stuff. But one thing that that, that you, you mentioned, I wanted to pick up on, which is 
I guess more amongst adults maybe, but but also with your younger kind of um, users. If you feel or a moderator or someone in your organization feels that someone would benefit from, um, you know, more treatment as in from a physician or from a clinician or anything like that, how does that then get triaged? Yeah, it's really important for us and coming back to that risk element and understanding, and, and this is again a core tenant with, with Dr. Kerrydeware, what, what can you do and what can you not do? Right. It's really important as a digital service to know where your boundaries lie and at what yeah, point well, you're yeah. handing over. Yeah. Um, and that, that integration into other pathways is so important. So, yeah, with, with each um, area or contract or, or um, organisation with whom we work, we're really clear on what are the handover points, what are the handoff points. Um, so, so two elements, I mean, it's relevant, as, as relevant to the adult and the um, children's service is if, if there's an escalation needed, if it needs um, higher intervention or critical intervention quickly, yeah. then we have the pathway set out for that. Okay. Um, and we will know on each individual basis where is that referral onto either from and, the and is that, Yeah. And is that, is that one of the reasons why you've chosen to go down a path of integrating with the local authorities so that you have that pathway embedded? Yeah. It's not necessarily one of the reasons. I think with any organisation that we would do that, we that would be something that we'd um, uh, we, we'd have to have in place. That's part okay. of our model that we want to know what is it that either from a time pressing kind of crisis scenario yeah. or from a, actually there needs to be something else, or it could be step down stuff, which is actually what is the what are the local. Um, I mean, again, <laughs> COVID non-permitting, but meetups in the area because right. um, you as a parent of a young child, what are the um, early years provision? And, and, and we'd recommend you to do that or you know, the things that are around yeah. the support that you get from Cooth. Okay, so let's just quickly touch on mental health and COVID because I think it's sort of unavoidable. It's definitely one of the things that has been discussed about quite extensively. So in, in your opinion, what do we kind of, what do we definitely know has been the impact of COVID and the pandemic on mental health? And what do we suspect will be the impact or could be the future impact, particularly on younger people? So I, th- I can talk um, pretty convincingly on, on, on what we can see right now. Yeah. I think um, predicting the future uh, from a clinical perspective, I would probably pull back from that given I'm not <laughs> clinic, clinical. I'd ask my yeah, clinical perspective. But I think from what we have seen, um, we can already see, for example, sleep difficulties up 262% on the wow. previous year, eating difficulties up 104%, self-harm, suicidal thought up nearly 40%, loneliness wow. up 55%. And then when we look at service users from black and non-white backgrounds, we see higher levels of self-harm, suicidal thoughts, depression and anxiety. So that's sobering. It's it's significant. It's immediate and it's widespread. Wow. And has have you got or is there anything different that Cooth is going to or trying to do, or is it more of the same, or is there anything specific that can be done even because it, there's an element where the pandemic is just out of all of our controls So how, what, what do you From think? From our perspective, um, self-learning. So understanding those particular presenting issues and creating more support and more um, uh, either expertise within our practitioner group 
but um, particularly the content and the other things that are meeting those needs more effectively. So us looking at the data, recognizing it and doing something about it, particularly um, for black and non-white backgrounds. We have an initiative in, in 2021. How do we better engage those groups and then not only engage, but then how once they're with us on the platform, how do we better fit, um, uh, meet their needs? So I think an awareness and an acceptance and a acknowledgement of the of the data that is there is really important mm. um, in terms of l- longer term and wider reaching that requires an entire kind of um, uh, in- integrate interaction between not just the mental health provision within um, within the society but actually an acknowledgement across the whole piece of uh, government and education and and, yeah. and parenting to understand what what the, what those longer term implications are yeah I mean I, I remember back when I was at school and you know, one of the things that that struck me was that that the, the younger people, that the the kind of the fixed path value system that 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 I had at school, which was like, well, you know, you have the terms and the exams, and the you know, it was sort of there was a path, and that institution would never disappear because it was school. I mean, you couldn't imagine ever not having to go to school. Whereas, you know, I, I feel like now the the, the trust in the system from younger people must have just been destroyed across the board, I would, I would think, which I yeah. think is very yeah. hard. Yeah. And also access into the job, you know, those coming out of school and going into right. university or higher education or, or, or um, the, the job market um, is really uncertain, unclear how, how long the impact's going to be. Um, I think if you're going to look at any kind of silver lining, I think it underlines even more that we need to have a system that supports those skills that I think are going to be ever needed in the future, but are now and have been shown as, as, as needed. So being able to deal with sort of ambiguity and um, change and resilience, uh, resilience are things that weren't really thought about, you know, 10 years ago. And I think we, we as, um, uh, sort of society members need to think about actually how do we educate our next generation in those things because not only will the job market require it because you know the, the um, I can't remember what the stat is but you know however many percent of jobs will not exist in 15 years time because yeah. of digital sort of revolution yeah, but, 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 but that's not COVID related that's just no, no that's no like, exactly that's not COVID related at all progress then you add a global pandemic and it's even and it's the same skills that you need yeah so um I think the combination of those two means that from an educational perspective and a societal perspective, we need to recognize that we all need to be better at those pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there was, um, there was something interesting that I read um, a while back, which was around one of the, you know, I guess sort of in the most recent generation of parents, there's been a, um, uh, a move or, or kind of a, a potential move away from trying to make life as, easy for your children as possible because that actually has an inverse effect on their ability to cope with future problems yeah because they it removes all of those little tiny knockbacks it's not like you need to i don't know lock them outside that manage challenge i think is probably yeah right manage challenge which i think is sort of what you're which which makes makes total sense um so let's talk about um with the uk i know that you're based in cambridge is cooth in cambridge uh, no, it's in well, London and Manchester. Okay, cool. Oh, it's, it's everywhere. We're we're, right. we're, yeah. we're national. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, do you, but, you, but um, and we're based in Cambridge as well. And we had last week, we had Dan Rook on, who is the co-founder of something called Start Code On, which is, I think you know them there, a health tech accelerator based out of Cambridge. Anyway, he was talking about Cambridge being the epicenter of, of health tech in Europe. But, like, you know, I don't want to kind of pin it on Cambridge. But do you think that the UK is a particularly special place for, for health tech and life science innovation right now? Or, you know, where, how do you see its role in Europe and the wider world? Um, life science innovation, I'd say absolutely. I, I think um, we have a huge opportunity. We've got huge strength from a from the um, uh, the academic and the laboratory perspective. Um, if you look across Cambridge and, and Imperial and Oxford and yeah. and other key hubs across the across the UK, we have a um, healthcare system that's respected around the world. Um, I think. Let's not beat around the bush and that there are barriers to getting innovation um, in terms of products and services. Not So not necessarily the sharp end of life sciences. I think actually there's been a lot of work done there in terms of getting that through testing and uh, trialing and, and into, into when, markets. When we talk about life sciences, we're talking about drug discovery and... Drug kind discovery of and, and genome stuff and you know things that are, require labs, right? Yeah. I think... I think there has been some really good work there and it is a lot better. And I do think we are a leader in the world on that. Health tech, I think we have having a well-respected and established health um, um, system right around the world mm -hmm. is both a good thing, but it's also a bit of a detractor yeah. because it means that um, there's a little bit of, uh, there can be some uh, um, adversity to when you want to trial things out. And because it's a, a single system, yeah. it's difficult to um, trial things sometimes in a, in a well, way. It, it, it's, it, the NHS is sort of uh, an, one of the most incredible organisations in the world, but it also can be quite hard. Yeah to to um i think it's like a huge it's obviously one entity but it's not it's it's hundreds if not thousands of exactly. different entities but sometimes it's one entity and sometimes it's not one entity and it's very difficult to kind of navigate through that um and and because you need what companies want or what what you know innovators want is adoption at scale but but yeah there is no one route into the NHS to manage that. So you end up having to go through the hundreds and thousands of different routes um, to try and sort of cobble that together. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's sort of unavoidable, but Cooth seems to have managed it very successfully. So it's yeah. possible. Yeah. But then, you know, they, they did it over a long period, right? Everyone sort of thinks yeah. Yeah, they, they were found in 2004. So right. um, it, it is difficult. Um, I mean, they did, they did do a great job, but um I think that's what it makes so important that these sort of health clusters do exist. Yes. I think it, 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 you know, coming back to having read history, like um, and enlightenment and coffee shops and people getting together and talking and doing things like this, doing what you're doing right now, right? Um, and and those being place-based as well as virtual, right? Working together in, in both ways is so important. So Cambridge is a great example of one. Imperial is a good example of one where actually there are, there's business, there's academia, there's... Um, uh, there are people there. There's the a structure. Together, there's the structure. There's the ideas. Is is, is really important? Yeah. Yeah. Is exactly. Yeah. 
So, and this is my, my final question. And throughout your career within, within HealthTech, so I ask this because we've had Bridget Bard on, who is a big proponent of gender equality um, in health tech. And we've got uh, Jenny Thomas, who leads the Digital London Health Accelerator, who is also running Femtech TV, as well as her co-founder on that. So we've got kind of a bit of a theme going in that respect. Obviously, my co-founder is, is female. So I'm interested to understand your view on throughout your career, the, the, the gender equality or lack thereof within health tech and healthcare, or how you view it and whether, you, you know, are, what you advocate for or don't advocate for. Or, yeah. What, what do you think? That's a big topic to end on. Yeah, I know. Like the last question, I'll, I'll just drop it on you. Um, okay. So I think um, there is a huge opportunity in women's health. Um, there are massive black holes of areas that have just been ignored, overlooked, um, and not thought about because of that sort of slight risk of, um, you know, if you're not dead, you're fine. But right. you know, pregnancy, menopause, um, the fact that most drugs have been tested on healthy white men in their 20s and the impact of what that looks like um, for a 65-year-old woman with diabetes is very, very different. So there is huge opportunity to crack open not just those markets from a commercial perspective, but actually to enhance people's lives where where a a whole half of the population has had big swathes of their their life stages basically essentially ignored. So um, I'm an investor in M-Powder, which is a... um, uh, a product um, company that's looking to um, and community uh, platform to to bust a lot of the myths around menopause. Okay, really important. Um, so huge opportunity. I think women are relatively well prese- represented across the healthcare community. Mm-hmm. Um, are they in um, leadership roles in um, heads of uh, you know, CEOs of startups and in the investor community? No. Yeah, absolutely not. Does yeah. that need to change? Absolutely. Is mm-hmm. it a long road? Yes. Yeah. I'm really, I'm there to help and support um, in any way I can because I think it's absolutely necessary. Great. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on. It was great to talk to you. Hopefully we can come back on another time and actually be live. But this is going to go out on Listen, um, listen On Demand later. And um, yeah, next week we have got... We've got, we've got Catherine Fokend from Femtech Insider next week and the co-founder of Perla. So that would be good. Anyway, thank you very much, Kate. Much appreciated. Thanks, Steve. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio.